Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and give him, give some of my thoughts about its themes. In this episode, I will be continuing my look at Dick's 1957 novel, Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky is a very complex and multi-layered novel examining things like the Cold War surveillance state, false realities, uh, psychology, paranoia, race relations, gender relations, a family, um, the anti-communist crusade, and and many other things. Religion is another theme in there as well. What, what the book comes down to, though, is that it argues that each of us holds within us a delusional view of reality and that there's just this big gap between each of us that we really can't appreciate or fully understand until we can really get directly into someone's head. And Dick uses science fiction to create uh, the opportunity to have these characters dwell in each other's minds and each other's experiences. So that's the conclusion. We, we can't really come, we really live in these distinct mental realms that can't be known to outside observers. And the result of this experiment is a really fascinating and brilliant novel of suspicion amid shifting realities. And as, as I've been saying in the last several episodes, I, I do think there's a shift in Dick's career, at least in terms of the novels he wrote in 1956, well, 1957 or so. In his earlier novels, and I'm including there Vulcan's Hammer, which wasn't published till later, but, you know, Dr. Futurity, too. These are novels that were written later, but um, were published later, but were written at an earlier time in his, his career. So those, but then also his early publications like Solar Lottery and The World Jones Made and The Man Who Japed. These are really novels of political dystopias, and they're all distinct, they're all unique, they have their own characteristics. And I think in a way they come together to really be Dick's response to Orwell, or I don't know if it's a conscious response, but while Orwell has this kind of monolithic view of dystopia um, and political dystopias, Dick explores a lot of different opportunities, and they're all much more flexible systems. They're they can be challenged, they can be questioned, and in that way I think Dick's a little bit more interesting than Orwell, especially when it comes to his his political vision, even though his ideas are maybe more off the wall and less grounded in actual historical totalitarianisms. But really with the cosmic puppets, the eye in the sky, the man in the high castle, and time out of joint, Dick starts to explore the themes of shifting realities and false fronts and and you know, just the fuzziness of reality. And each novel takes it in a distinct way. So in Cosmic Puppets, it's about actually gods doing this, shifting the world under our feet and using Earth, using our existence as a cosmic battlefield. In Eye in the Sky, it's about our own individual psychology and how we all literally look at the world differently and how we can't really understand that. So the shifting realities are really more in our head and our perspectives and subjectivities. And then in Man in the High Castle, that's more like a meta-analysis of the whole thing. 
And in time of joint, it's it's really for a political purpose. It's it's um, you know for a very practical political purpose that realities are shifting, and it's done for only really one person. So, but I will say that although not as overtly political as some of Dick's earlier novels, I and this guy is a novel of utopia. In the world that the characters experience, and they experience four different worlds, are utopias or in two cases dystopias. But at least, especially the two first two cases, we have examples of someone projecting onto everyone else around them what they envision to be the ideal world, the perfect world. And so I do think Dick is casting doubt on the concept of utopia in the sense that any one of us or a subset of us or a group of us may very well be able to create a world that fits our description of an ideal society or ideal political system. That is going to be a horror for most of the rest of the people. And as I talked about in the last episode, this is also a novel which has some really interesting identity politics where you see Dick challenging traditional roles for women. Um, in some cases, it's seen as backward. It's conservative. We have a relationship that's much more hippy-dippy and, and free. And even they play with and experiment with and think about free love. Uh, we have a traditional mother who ends up being presented as very psychotic and paranoid. We have another woman who's been the subject of, of abuse, and she comes out of that with a feeling of paranoia. So she actually becomes mentally ill due to the violence inflicted on her. So there's some interesting issues here just in feminism, but even some perhaps Me Too issues can be read into, into Eye in the Sky. And then we also have racial politics. And I, I think there's a really interesting subplot here with the character of Bill Laws, who's a black man working as a tour guide in this particle accelerator thing that everyone falls into and which allows them to experience each other. But as they, as they, well, as he falls into this and he starts to experience these other worlds, he realizes that he actually likes some of these other worlds better than the real world because he's facing all sorts of racism there. And one, one world in particular, he thinks he actually can have a better time of it if he stays behind and then he's also subject through these mental delusions that he experiences the racist stereotypes of of the people who create the worlds because individuals behavior even changes as they enter these different worlds and experience literally experience the world through other people's eyes it's a very character driven story and we have a lot of nicely felt well-formed characters as well in my previous episodes i i introduced who some of these these people are. So I won't go over that again. Just go back and listen to my previous episodes on Eye in the Sky and you'll get caught up to speed of, of who they are. But there, there's a, a wide variety of, of, of people, all different ages, men, women, different life experiences. And that's kind of what you need for this novel to work, because if everyone kind of came from the same sector, you wouldn't expect such radical um, diversity in, in experiences. Now, in this in this novel, we only get four different realities. So I, I wonder if Dick was thinking of doing eight at one point and then just never got around to finishing it. That, that you know, I think it would have been really to the point if every single of the of the eight people had actually experienced this or, or created their own world. And this would really come down to Dick's or this would really reduce Dick's point and make it clear is that each of us live in a delusional mental realm. None of us are really look at the world as as tr as it should be, as it really is. So it's sometimes fun to look at Philip K. Dick's exegesis. Um, I'm not a person who thinks it's that important. 
um, to understand Dick's work. Um, there are some people who take it very seriously, and there's some people who even see Dick as almost a prophetic or a prophet-like figure. What I, how I understand the exegesis, which we don't know, is a bunch of writing that Dick did later in his life after he had some strange events in when was it in 74 um march of 74 and then he spent i think it was a couple of years just writing his response to when he stopped writing fiction and he focused mostly on writing this exegesis and part of it has this has been published um in the partially published version is almost a thousand pages it's it's by edited by pamela jackson and jonathan Lethem. And it's a bit expensive. It's the hardcover version is $40. I don't know about the paperback. And I haven't read the whole thing. I don't know how many people actually would want to do that. I'll probably do it in this podcast when we, when I'm done with the novels and the stories. My plan is to do the science fiction stuff first, and then maybe go back and look at some of the posthumously published conventional novels, and then, then take on, as much as I feel like wanting to do, the exegesis. Because I do think it's a it's an interesting work of of self reflection, um, but as far as the novels are concerned, what can we learn about the novels from from these? And I'm not sure we can learn much. Something very profound happened to Dick, at least from his perspective. It was a an important event in his life, and then he went back and started to think about it a lot. And one way he thought about this was in respect to his own work, particularly works like Ubik, which he talks about almost on every page of this. Um, other novels, though, do show up from time to time. And Eye in the Sky is one that's fairly commonly represented here because especially his novels about false fronts and false realities and shifting realities are issues he was thinking about when he was writing the exegesis. Um, and so it's organized by like folders, I think. And so in folder 29, page 57, we have this. In some respects, I is the most accurate of all. And here he's talking about, he's talking about a stream of associative thinking, uh, worlds breaking down, degenerating, entropy. Things like that. So he says, in some respect, I, I is the most accurate of all. Great hunks of spurious time events are reeled out, whereas only seconds in RET, real lapse time, have taken place. If we didn't dream, we could not even imagine such a thing, must left believe it. And and then he gives a list of, of nine or nine slash 12, first nine, and he adds some secondary novels, 12 novels that he think are into this theme of they're all out of it. And he lists Eye in the Sky, Time Out of Joint, The Man in the High Castle, Martian Time Slip, um, Three Stigmata, uh, Ubik, Maze of Death, Flow My Tears, The Scanner Darkly. And then he throws in Clans of the Alphane Moon, The Game Players of Titan and the Cosmic Puppets as kind of secondary explorations of this theme. So that's one reference he makes to Eye in the Sky. And another he makes is he, this is, I guess, folder 15. It's not in order. I don't, I'm not sure how this is edited. Yeah, um, or maybe it's by year. So this is 1978, folder 15. Eye in the Sky, Time Out of Joint, Three Stigmata, Ubik, and Maze of death are all the same novel written over and over again. The characters are out cold and lying together on this floor, on a floor, mass hallucinating the world. Why have I written this up at least five times? Because as I discovered on in 374, when I experienced an amnesia, remember, I 
remembering that I'm an apostolic Christian and I saw ancient Rome. This is our condition. We're mass hallucinating in this 1970s world. What, what's got to be gotten over is this false idea that a hallucination is a private matter. And one more. This is on page 402. This is volume 18 from 1978. He says, so joint eye stigmata ubic maze and tears. He uses abbreviations for all these books. So joint eye stigmata ubic maze and tears are progressively part of one unfolding true narrative in which the genuine hermetic macro micro cosmology is put forth. The spurious world deserted for what it is and in maze and especially tears the true state of things put forth to jog our memories. Six novels interlocked along with a number of stories. We are not to be allowed to fugue, sleep, and hallucinate worlds because due to the BIP from which we fled, this fugue over the past 5,000 years turned lethal. The BIP grew and grew with our now unwitting collusion. BIP, if you don't know, is Black Iron Prison, which is a, a metaphor he reuses a lot in his writing at this time. So what can we draw from this? Again, I, I'm not sure we can say that these are the ideas that were in his head when he wrote Eye in the Sky. I, I think he was much more thinking about Cold War surveillance state. I think he was thinking about subjective realities and how each of us does live in a, in a different realm. I think he was talking about utopian family and other things. What he's doing in the exegesis is co combining it with other novels about, about this alternate reality we live in, right? And the falseness of the world we live in. Um, and so he's often grouping it with others. And I think that's the only very small conclusion I can draw from just glancing at some of the references to Eye in the Sky made in the in the exegesis. I think the problem here is like in in Time Out of Joint in, in Eye in the Sky and even in Cosmic Puppets, there's a fake and a real and it's pretty clear what the fake and the real are. It's not that confusing and people realize they're in, in, a, in a world that's changed. The way I understand his description of the Black Iron Prison, especially in his later novels, is somehow we're in a, in a false world and, and we're kind of of it. And we, and so he doesn't really get to this point till time out of joint where you do have a character who certainly doesn't know he's in a false reality. And these other stories, especially these first two cosmic puppets and, and Eye in the Sky, the characters are coming to terms with a world that they know concretely has changed in some way. But he does say something interesting. This is right. This is also on page 402, Folder 18 from 1978. That's for me a little bit more meaningful. Uh, quote, freedom then and the courage to take our stand against the black iron prison are totally interwoven. We lost our freedom, exchanged it for a hallucinated world in which we could ignore and even serve the black iron prison instead of recognizing it. Because if we recognized it, we'd have to fight it and suffer at its hands or face our own evil, the voluntary serving of it by us. I mean, this, I think, is very, very profound. I've been recently been rereading some anarchist texts, some early anarchist texts. And this was something that people like Etienne de la Bautier were concerned about. Like, why do we serve a state that we know is oppressing us? That's obviously oppressing us. You know, how, why do we serve one man, a monarch? When it's, you know, it's one thing to, to serve the bully on the playground, right? He's bigger than you and you can't do much about the guy who's bigger than you. But it's different when you have like millions of people commanded by one. 
And there must be some form of self-delusion involved. And even William Godwin talks about this a little bit, although he's more interested in institutions than De La Bautier is. Um, and I think Dick's sort of getting at this, like well, the reason we don't challenge the Black Iron Prison, which I think we can just imagine as the total institutions of oppression around us, not necessarily just a false reality, but you know, the entire constructed world that we didn't have any say in. You know, we it, because there's a going that far forces us to really act and resist, and that's something many of us, for whatever reason, fear, ideology, you know, or or whatever, are just afraid to do. And to this point, I, I guess we could say in Eye in the Sky, we do have characters who are perfectly willing to accept the false reality that they're in. I'm thinking here of Bill Laws, who at one point says, you know, the world's better here for me. You know, so I, I'll take the, the false world over the real world, which is which is horrible. All right, enough on the exegesis. I'll, I'll read some more of it. And maybe in my next episode, I'll see other things he says about Eye in the Sky in there. But for now, it seems he's kind of grouping it with another set of novels which he he seems to deem as more important and that he, he's always kind of saying this is an early exploration of a theme that i would develop later on now he also talks about family family is really at the center of dick's mind and this is one of those things he like almost never talks about in the exegesis but it comes up so much in his works you, you, you can't I, I really don't think you can take the exegesis that seriously as a key to interpreting dick because he's coming at his own works with such a heavy, you know, a dominant idea that, yeah, I think it has some value. I'm, I'm not completely discounting it, but I think it, it kind of ignores a lot of works, earlier works of his that are quite interesting and themes that he explored that are quite interesting. Um, one of these, I think, is, is family, which comes up a lot. And then, you know, at, at this time. So in the world Jones made, a family is nearly destroyed because the protagonist has more love for his job than for his wife. Now here, the job is set aside for the family. So in a sense, he does what the main character in the world Jones made refuses to do. And that's, that's I guess, progress, I suppose. Um, and Dick does show characters perfectly willing to sacrifice pleasure and happiness and, and things for loved ones. Uh, especially he, this is the main, one of the main points of uh, now wait for last year. He even secretly harbors doubts that his wife truly is a communist, which is what she was really accused of and why he had to leave his job. But yet he wants to stand by her. And he, he shoots her at one point in the novel, but that's to break free of the final fantasy world. And only then does she learn that she's not a communist. So she actually, he actually believes this to the very last pages of the novel. And I think to the last chapter. Now, two symbols run through the eye in the sky that suggest the struggles of family life. One is the Hamilton home. In all four fantasy worlds, the Hamilton home is a base of operations, a site of conflict, but, or a place of safety and security. And so it, it's a symbol in the novel again and again. It's the Hamilton home. And it's, it's what, there's a couple places that they keep returning to. Like one is the bar, one is the Hamilton household, one is the workplace, the, the place that Hamilton's trying to get this new job in. I think those are the three main ones that they keep coming back to. Um, but the Hamilton's home is is important and it has a different role in each. Now, actually, all these places have a slightly different function in the different worlds they're in. But I think it it at times it's a site of, of profound marital conflict. And sometimes it's seen as a site of security and safety and protection. 
And I don't know how much farther I can go with that, but it's just that any of us probably feel this way about our homes at any time, especially if we're in a relationship that, you know, this is a place of peace and security and, and safety, but also it's a place that sometimes you dread going to if there's conflict at home. And, you know, I'm sure Dick felt that way about his home as well. And he's kind of going back and forth and flipping around in his attitudes about family probably reflect his own experiences. Now, but the other symbol we have here is Silky. Silky is apparently a threat to the family. Jack Hamilton is attracted to her physically. Uh, he does desire to have sex with her. And there are moments in which she directly propositions him and he flirts with her and, you know, he wants to be alone with her and he, he is alone with her sometimes. And in the second world they live in, the one created by Edith, um, Edith, what's her name? Edith Pritchett. In that world, their marriage is actually falling apart over this woman, Silky. Um, I'll talk about that so that stuff in the next episode. Anyways, um, just like the Hamilton home, Silky appears in different guises throughout the book. So sometimes she appears as a prostitute. In the second world, she's a sweet friend of the family and who becomes like a homewrecker or a, th a homewrecker. In the third, she becomes a spider. And in the fourth, she's a Communist Party loyalist. Jack's able to resist all of these. And the result of this is this challenge to really restore normalcy to his family. And by shooting his wife in the chest at the end, he almost ironically restores the home to its proper place and restores and puts Silky in her proper place. Like Silky, it's almost like a final commitment to his family when he shoots his wife. Of course, he, he knows by this point that shooting someone in this world doesn't necessarily doesn't carry over into the real world. People, other people have died in that world in their back later on. So it's it's not like he's murdering his wife, but he's he is shooting her and causing pain to her. And at other points in the story, he says, like, don't hurt my wife. So he does want to protect her, even though he knows he's in a mental realm. So he does take this step of shooting her. And this this results in normalcy and a, and a more perfect family restored out of it. Yet nevertheless, the fantasy worlds become a means by Dick to explore the deep divisions that exist between Jack and Marsha Hamilton. Jack comes to resent much about Marsha's political views, seeing them as the root of his trouble, and she, he starts to blame her more and more for the trouble he's in. He certainly never stops believing that she may be a communist until the very end of the story. And Marsha's acceptance and even support for Edith Pritchett's moral reform efforts, and those are things I'll talk about in, this, in the next episode, you know, is another point of conflict he he is baffled that she becomes a moralist at this point and it's it's kind of tied to her feminism she sees uh the male dominated society as tied to sin and degradation and that's something she likes about Edith Pritchett even though she is a bit of a hippie and a bit on the left Silky is of course another source of conflict between them so these conflicts evaporate when the conditions that created them, the security and surveillance apparatus and the false realities are no longer relevant to their lives. And this is one reason at the end of the novel, Jack Hamilton has to choose to abandon a, a profession, a career in, in government contracting science, because that's always going to be something that's going to be tied to surveillance state. Um, now, as I talked about in the last episode, the surveillance state takes different forms in each of these realities, but it's always there. It's always so the eye in the sky is in virtually every world they visit. 
But what I want to say here is that it also becomes the centerpiece of the marital conflict. And we obviously uh, are aware of how much surveillance plays a role in long-term relationships, right? With, especially nowadays in the internet um, world, but from the earliest literature, right? The, the adulterous wife or the adulterous husband were centerpieces of literature. And to a degree, marriage is maintained through state surveillance or in, you know individual private surveillance, but it's always been there. Right. Some of the first laws that were written down, you know, on clay tablets were about, you know, who can have access to to women. Right. And laws about marriage. And if you, you know, you have sex with a unmarried woman, you know, you have to marry her and this kind of stuff that you see in in ancient texts, including the Bible. And the point here being that the tension in their marriage was a result of the pressure they felt from their place in these hierarchical systems. So that's what I want to talk about basically thematically. I want to get back to the plot a little bit. So just for a recap, in the first part of the story, in the, la in the last two episodes, we talked about how Jack Hamilton is losing his job because of the computer, computer, company security officer deemed his wife, Marcia, to be a security threat. The security officer is named Charlie McFay. He still wants to be friends with them and he invites a bunch of drinks. But first they tour the Bevatron particle deflator and they have an accident that throws them and five other people into it. They wake up in the hospital. Everyone is okay. Um, but one person, Arthur Sylvester, is more deeply injured. The Hamiltons go home, taking with them another woman, Joan Reese, a businesswoman. Uh, um, Hamilton, Jack Hamilton lies at one point. And he's stung by a bee. He's also a bit disrespectful and mean to Joan Reese, particularly when she expresses her fear of cats. So a uh, form of locus comes to punish him for this. This proves that the world they're experiencing is not real and governed by different laws. They realize that one of the major differences in this world is that the prayers can seem to be answered. Bill Laws, the tour guide, who was also in the accident, for instance, claims he has a, cure, a charm that can cure injuries. Jack Hamilton begins looking for a new job and visits his friend, Dr. Tillingford. The interview he has is bizarre. Jack is told that he will be paid in credits towards salvation, since all necessities come to people directly via prayer. His work will be in a field, the only important scientific field that still remains, the field of theophonics, the, the, the technology and the science of talking to God. The conclusion we come to at this point is that in this world, God is real. God answers prayers. In particular, this God is the God described by the second Babist religion. Now, this is a real religion in our world. It's not invented by Dick. Well, at least Babism is, and I don't know about second Babism. But it's essentially a new religious movement. Instead of communism, the boss here is worried about sexual purity and the religious background of his applicants. On his way out, he's investigated by a man named Brady, who's kind of the, I guess he's the Charlie McFay of this world, the one checking up and investigating the employees. He asks about Hamilton's N rating. When he can't provide one, Jack is challenged to a trial of faith. He loses because Brady's able to pray for answers to questions and easily wins. Brady even gets direct help from an angel during the challenge. All more, all of this is more evidence that God is real. His angels are real. Prayer is answered and, and you know, it's pretty wild. Jack goes to a bar where he sees Charlie McFay and they discuss how the bar is necessary to the moral order for dialectical reasons. Laws is there as well with a prostitute named Silky. Silky tries to invite Jack to be alone with her. They, he, he resists this, and then they investigate the bar and learn more about how prayers work by jerry-rigging the cigarette machine, which doesn't have any cigarettes in it, but somehow makes them via prayer. And he 
manages to use it to make an infinite amount of brandy. Hamilton and McFay then go to an old non-Second Bab church, which some of them still exist. There they talk to a priest, an Irish priest. They then ask for their umbrella to be blessed with holy water. This the priest does. And then after a prayer, they begin to rise into the sun like Mary Poppins. I guess Mary Poppins comes down on her umbrella or whatever, but here they go up. So again, prayers being answered, religious magic seems to work. And that's where I left off in the previous episode. And for today, since I, I did so much with the exegesis and stuff, I'm already at 30 minutes or so. I'll just I'll just talk about two chapters. And this will get us to about the halfway point of, of the novel. So after, as they're rising up, Jack Hamilton and Charlie McFay they are, are riding this umbrella up to heaven. And as they go up, they observe several important characteristics about the universe they're experiencing. And it seems this scene is almost here just because Dick wants to have this vision and have this moment where he shows the broad panoramic of this world. The first thing they realize is that they're in a geocentric universe, conforming to the Ptolemaic model, where the earth is in the center and the sun goes around it. Second, heaven and hell were physical locations in this universe that can be observed. Third, there's a cosmic lake that later turns out to be a gigantic eye that dominates the field of vision as they get closer to heaven. Now, you might think that this is the title's eye in the sky, and just you wouldn't be wrong to, to say that. But I want to, again, say that there are many different eyes in the sky throughout the book. The surveillance state is omnipresent everywhere, and even in an alternate world, there's a surveillance state. There's none of these alternate worlds we that they visit that's like a libertarian paradise where government doesn't watch people. The government changes and what it looks for changes, but it's always there. So we got this gigantic eye there. The umbrella then catches fire and they fall back to earth landing in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Now this is very convenient because Hamilton was told to go see prophet Horace Clamp and he lives in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So it's almost like divine intervention here. So near Cheyenne, they go, they see a large skyscraper that was the central temple or is the central temple of the one true faith and the one true God. Hamilton prays for money and coins rain from the sky, but it's less than he prayed for, which shows that it seems like God helps, but he doesn't, you know, he kind of gives you what he thinks you deserve, I guess. So he's very, an activist God. McFay plans to return to Belmont, California because he's suffering from boils as if paying penance for sin. So the same thing that prayers are answered, but punishments really do come down and they're biblical Old Testament kind of punishments. Hamilton, however, chooses to remain to visit this prophet Horace Clamp and find out more about the world. The temple he visits seems more like a massive bureaucratic office building than a religious space. Clamp finally does get meet with Hamilton and tells him that Tetragrammaton, has announced his visit to him. Now, Tetragrammaton, if you don't know, it's the name of God, the, the Yahweh, right? Those four letters. So it's Y-H-W-H, right? That's Yahweh. Jehovah is spelled in J-H-V-H. And I don't know, you know, when one is used or when the other is used, but that's the Tetragrammaton. I think Dick must have liked how it sounds. It's kind of science fiction-y almost, but it's, it's actually the technical term for these four letters that, that spell out the word Yahweh, the name of God. And since they don't can't say the name of God, they'll just, they just use Tetragrammaton as a name almost, and that's how it's presented, but it's always in brackets. So it's, it's, it's kind of fun here. So Tetragrammaton is a name that God prefers to be known by. Not Yahweh. He's actually wants to be called Tetragrammaton, which I, I just th thought this was really fun and interesting. 
Now, Hamilton asked Clamp a series of questions about Second Bab, and he often intermixes his own opinions about faith in this conversation. Clamp comes to know that Hamilton really comes from a different world, and there's no way, and the point is, there's no way you can live in this world and not believe in God, right, or not have questions on faith, because God is demonstrably true. He answers prayers literally, and it's in the same way, you know, when atheists ask Christians, you know, what's your good reason for your beliefs, you know, they, they can't come up with anything concrete, something, nothing demonstrable, right, because it doesn't seem God answers prayers, but this is a world where God will heal amputees, right? So Clamp then realizes, basically because of Hamilton's questions, that Hamilton must come from a different world. And so he, instead of saying, wow, this is wild, he says, no, we need a jihad to bring the message of Tetragrammaton to that world as well. So Hamilton then observes the worship, worship service and takes a look at the massive wall plaque, which lists all the faithful. And this is an important point because this is all the people who are saved. There's not many of them. Most people aren't being saved apparently in this world, but this is a, a list of, of the people who are actually going to heaven which is a nice touch. I wish God was so open and honest in, in our world. And he, he sees McFay's name's not on the list. He looks for McFay's name. He's not there. But one name from the group of accident victims is on that list, and that's Arthur Sylvester. So now he knows that Arthur Sylvester is key to unlocking this collective delusion. So Hamilton quickly returns home to Belmont, where he meets his wife. Marcia declares that she's about to die. Marcia and Bill Laws have been changing based on the expectations of Arthur Sylvester. So this is really where we start to see the individual characters shift based on how the person who creates this world sees them. So Arthur Sylvester starts to make Marcia a cartoonist, cart cartoonish image of a young radical woman. So kind of overweight and sexless. And this is how he sees feminists. And he, he assumed Farmersha was a feminist or a radical. And so she actually starts to change her form. Laws, meanwhile, starts to shuffle and become like a stereotypical African-American. And again, Arthur Sylvester's racist worldview. He starts to talk in dialect and things. And Hamilton notices this and points it out. And Laws can stop it, it seems. But Laws sometimes fakes talking in dialect to kind of carry on a, uh, as a kind of another layer of, of fakeness to it. But it, the point is these characters are changing. Hamilton then declares that all this, all this began to, all this is based on Sylvester's belief that Sylvester is at the heart of this delusion. So on Sunday morning, a sermon is being delivered via television by Tetragrammaton himself, another piece of evidence that God is alive and well. This is why the non-Second Bab churches are declining and no one goes to them anymore because there's no good reason not to believe in the God of this world. So Tetragrammaton actually gives sermons to people on the radio. Laws is beginning to talk in this cliched variant of an African-American dialect. Along with Charlie McFay, the four of them then plan to confront Sylvester so it's Laws, McFay, and the Hamiltons. They're, they're the most active in this world. They want to confront Sylvester and escape this world. They think that if they can somehow stop him from projecting his reality onto them, they can get out of it. And they'll just wake up in the Bevatron building. Hamilton then explains, and this is a key point of the novel, that Sylvester is not likely malevolent. The point is that they're all trapped in this fantasy world. And this is really this is really how he sees the world. So he he's not cruel. He's not vicious. He actually sees the world working in these ways, and this is just a manifestation of his mental realm. They're inside his delusion. They go to the hospital now. I think there's a bit of an explanation about why he was the one 
they go into and i think it was because everyone else passed out during the accident sylvester was still alive and awake and so he was the one who could kind of construct the reality oh it doesn't have to be much of an explanation it's just dick having fun but he does have to creep in a little bit of an explanation just to satisfy um the people who are going to want that so they all go to the they all go to the hospital they collect the other three, the Pritchetts and Joan Reese, and they confront Sylvester in his hospital bed. And after talking with Sylvester, remember, he was the most severely injured. They talk with Sylvester. He orders Laws to leave because he's racist. He doesn't want black people in his room. They refuse to follow his orders, and Sylvester tr transforms into a divine force himself. Aided by angels, Sylvester manages to defend his faith from these atheists and communists in the group. Joan Reese manages to knock Sylvester unconscious by throwing him to the floor. When that happens, the angels depart and they seem to escape the fantasy world. Doctors arrive to the scene. McFay's boils are instantly healed. Marcia appears to Jack to be a little too thin, though. She's back to normal, but not quite. So she just appears too thin. So he tells her, you got to take off your clothes. And she does. And that's when they learn that she has no sex organs. And they look at themselves and they all don't have sex organs. So at this point, then they realize that not, you know, they, although they defeated Sylvester's delusion, they have entered someone else's mental, mental realm. Um, and this takes us to the halfway point of, of the novel. So in the next episode, I'll, I'll take a look at a bit more of the novel, probably another three chapters or, or so. And I might talk about some other themes uh, look at exegesis a little bit more to see what else Dick has to say about eye in the sky in the exegesis. If it's the same kind of stuff, though, I, I won't do too much of that, but uh, I, I will, you know, just keep going on. So next episode will be more of the same, more on eye in the sky. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any, your own comments about this novel, comments about the exegesis, what you feel about that, comments about the surveillance state or this, you know, the novel or Dick's writings in general, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. So um, I'll be back next time with part four of my review, my extended review of Eye in the Sky. Come my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving